Amen. All right, back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 for our message this evening. The Bible says, Those who endure unto the end shall be saved. And uh, you are all enduring unto the end in this series in 1 Corinthians. We've been at it now for eight weeks, and this evening we will finish out the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're going to begin with verse 26 down through verse 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, these are the words of God. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus." who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Amen. For the last several weeks, we've been following the Apostle Paul as he's addressed this grand theme of human wisdom compared and contrasted to the wisdom of God. And we've seen how man's wisdom perceives the message of the cross as foolishness. And we've looked at God's disdain and contempt for worldly wisdom. Last week, we considered how the commission of preaching Christ crucified seems foolish to a world that doesn't understand the wisdom of God. Yet this is exactly how God has ordained for His purpose of redemption to be accomplished. That is through the foolishness of preaching. And all of those messages where we've looked at this throughout chapter 1, they're all on our website, they're all on Sermon Audio, and I'd recommend those of you who have been visiting with us for the last several weeks, who've missed a week or two, to go back and maybe refresh your memory so that you can follow along with what Paul is doing here. It's really a, a brilliant treatment of this subject. The Apostle Paul is one of the greatest rhetoricians learned in rhetoric and logic that's ever lived. I think Paul puts those ancient philosophers to shame. And as we come to this text in verse 26, we come now to a a new subheading, as it were, under the thesis of wisdom and foolishness. Same discussion, different viewpoint. And we transition from a foolish message to foolish messengers. A foolish message to foolish messengers. Paul introduces a new argument for the uselessness of human wisdom by calling the attention of the Corinthians to their own personal experiences. Something they had witnessed, something they had seen with their own two eyes, something that was familiar all around them. And specifically, Paul is going to prove his point of the superiority of God's wisdom by alluding to who God has chosen to use to constitute His church. Specifically, the church at Corinth, but also every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
is a testimony to the superiority of God's wisdom. And I want to look tonight from this passage at who does God call? By way of a title, if I were going to give one, it would be who does God call? I want you to see that only God could take a bunch of misfits and sinners and use them for His honor and His glory. That's true for the Corinthians, and that's true for us. And if you want proof of the matchlessness of God's wisdom, just look around you. Before we approach the text, before we get into it, let me remind you of something very encouraging. And that is this. All of you qualify to be greatly used of God. The Lord is not looking for those whom the world deems as successful and profitable. But the Lord finds those whom He can lavish His grace upon and equip to do what He's called them to do. This is how God is pleased to advance His kingdom in the world. By using men and women just like you and just like me. And so the first thing I want you to see in this passage is the strange choice. The strange choice. Look at it in verse 26. He begins for, and he's referring back to the assertion that he made in verse 25. In verse 25, he says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And of course, he's speaking here from the unbeliever's viewpoint. Obviously, there is no actual foolishness with our God. Paul is is using a little bit of sarcasm there, as he's accustomed to do. And so in verse 26, with this four, he's saying, I'm going to give you a reason that proves what I just said in verse 25. Ye see your calling. You want to know how God's wisdom is so much better than man's wisdom? Look at your calling. Mm -hmm. Look at yourself. Take a look at the guy that you see in the mirror in front of you. As Paul is pinning verse 26, perhaps he begins to think of the membership of the Corinthian church. Perhaps he begins to think of of who's sitting on those pews week in and week out. Some of the most unlikely candidates to ever be used of God. But that's exactly whom God has chosen to use. Amen. What a splendid example to prove the magnificence of God's wisdom. See, verse 26 appeals to our own experiences. If you understand anything about God and anything about yourself, then you know what a wonder it is that the God of the cosmos would be pleased to use someone like you. Mm-hmm. Amen. Now this calling here, you see your calling. This calling is again a reference to that efficacious and inward call of the gospel that we saw in verse 24. And I'm not going to re-preach the message from last week, but we we spent a great deal of time talking about the efficacious, irresistible, sovereign call of God. This is a reference not just to those called to uh, the pastorate or the deaconship or some place of authority, or a place of public ministry, but this is a reference to anyone and everyone who has been called of God to be followers of Jesus Christ. 
We know this because he calls them brethren. He says, you see your calling, brethren. What have they been called to? They've been called to be brothers in the Lord. And those who are brothers and sisters in Christ are those who are called to be followers of Christ by God. No one adopts themselves into God's family. But God is the one who calls us to himself. It is God that does the adopting. It is God that made you his children. You did not make him your father. He made you his children. You see, your calling is to be understood collectively. Not just as an individual, but also as you see the calling of the whole assembly. In other words, it's not just you, but, but it's the different types of people that the Lord has called to be believers in Christ and members of the church. We covered some of the societal aspects of Corinth, right? And how wicked of a city that was. The immorality and, and the, the wickedness that was going on and was just rampant in Corinth. And God is saying, that's the type of people God called to be His people. Look around us. I'm sure all of us could give a hundred reasons why God shouldn't call us. I'm sure we could all come up with all kinds of resumes as to why God should have just overlooked us. Because we had nothing within ourselves that would have been appealing to Him. Now, there are some people from our carnal minds where we could say, I understand why God would call that guy. That guy's great. That guy's wonderful. God says, no, no. I called you. I called you. In my wisdom. Because my wisdom is way better than yours. And so as we look at this, we're going to answer two questions. Who does God call and why? Who does God call and why? And the first thing we see is three categories of individuals from which the Lord doesn't call many of His people. Notice in verse 26 that the word not is mentioned three times. And then in verse 27 and 28, God will tell us what types of people He does call. And this is a common tactic in the Bible, especially in the writings of Paul, to state the same point both negatively and positively. So we see it first in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many, and I want to just stop and say that that says many. It does not say any. Okay? Obviously God can and does call whomsoever He desires. It's not that He's limited to a certain category of individuals. But the thrust of this verse is that God is often pleased to use men and women whom the world discounts and discredits and overlooks and writes off. Those are the kind of people that God is most often pleased to use for His glory. How that not many, and then look at these categories in verse 26. Not many wise men after the flesh. This is a direct reference to those who are enthralled with worldly wisdom and human philosophy. Those who are caught up in everything that was so popular in Corinth. God says, I'm not looking for the most intellectual. I'm not looking for the most learned. I'm not looking for the guy that has all of these letters behind his name showing all of the education that he has achieved. I'm not looking for the one who considers himself to be oh so smart. 
God wants nothing to do with our know-it-allism. Right. And education is, is wonderful. Being intellectual is wonderful. But those things do not procure you any favor with God. God did not call you because of your college degree or because of how much knowledge you have. These wise philosophers that were so esteemed in the Greek culture, the Aristotles and the Plato's and the Seneca's, God says, I didn't call many of them, did I? No, I, I, I called you. I called you. He is not calling many wise men after the flesh, but He's also not calling many mighty. Verse 26. Not many mighty. This, this speaks of those who are well known in society. Those who are celebrities, if you will. Those, those are people that have a lot of influence. The ones who set the trends in pop culture. They're the ones with all the Twitter followers. They're the ones with all the YouTube subscribers. But their fame and their glamour doesn't make them any more desirable to God. Amen. Do you think God is impressed by the celebrities of this world? Do you think God looks at a Brad Pitt or a Justin Bieber and says, Wow, now this guy, this guy is really something. I've got to call him. The fame and fortunes of this world are worthless in the kingdom of God. Amen. Whosoever shall lose his life shall find it. And there's one other category from which God does not call many people. Not many noble are called at the end of verse 26. Paul's, I mean, he's naming the who's who list. He's naming the Corinthian of the year list. I mean, if Times Magazine was putting out a man of the year in 40 A.D., people from these three categories would be on the front cover. Paul said, I'm not calling many noble. Who's the noble? Those who are well-born. Those who are born into the upper echelon of society. Those from the nobility. Those who are guaranteed a life of success and prosperity from the moment that they enter this life. And what Paul is saying here, what the Bible says is that your lineage, your genealogy, your family name, we get that, right? We live in a small town. Those of you who've been in Henry County for a while, you can tell me some prominent family names here in Henry County. It means nothing to God. Amen. God doesn't care who your parents are. Your, your first birth is not what matters. It's your second Amen. Birth. That matters to God. And so these three groups of people make up the top dogs of, of secular society, but they do not impress God. He said, I didn't call many from these groups. God has not chosen many people from these categories, and, and that alone befuddles human reasoning. The natural man doesn't understand why God would pass over those categories. If you were going to establish your kingdom in the world, wouldn't you choose those who are rich and successful and popular and influential to be your model citizens? That makes sense to us, does it not? 
But God has done just the opposite. It's the strange choice of God. Now, look at verses 27 and 28. God has told us who He did not choose many of, and now He tells us who He does choose many of. These are the cream of the crop in God's eyes. God loves to take the nobodies of this world and call them to Himself and pour out His grace upon them and transform them and mold them and use them to accomplish His purpose. Amen. Sometimes old adages can be silly. Sometimes they can be true. And there's an old adage that says, God does not call the equipped, but He equips the called. Amen. I believe that's a true adage. God calls those who are the most unlikely candidates. Those who are the least of the least. And I can say this because it's my testimony. God was scraping the bottom of the barrel when He found me. I I possessed nothing of my own that would make me desirable to God. I had no assets of my own to bring to the table. I I I was a worthless piece of clay that's been molded by the Master's hands into a vessel of divine mercy. Amen. And I marvel every day that the God of heaven and earth would choose to use someone like me. Preparing for this message, studying these verses, cut right to the heart. Because I read these verses, and I thought, Lord, I am exhibit A of this text. And if you understand who God is and who you are, that's your testimony too your testimony too. And what we learn in this text is that the things which elevate man in the world are not the things which lead him to God. Human merits and achievements are not effectual with a God who is sovereign in the dispensation of His grace. Amen. God was not obligated to call you. Do you realize that? Amen. But your calling is on the sole basis of God's grace alone. So look at who God has been pleased to call. Verse 27, But God hath chosen, stressing the contrast between verses 26 and 27. He didn't choose these, and He hath chosen these. God is entirely free in His choice. He chooses by Himself and for Himself. He chooses whom He pleases, not on the account of anything within them. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that God has chosen you not because of you, but in spite of you. Amen. This is what God has chosen first, the foolish things of the world. Now this is not an excuse for us as the Lord's people to be stupid. <laughs> I've heard that verse abused in that way many times. This doesn't give me the right to preach to you with a poor vocabulary and a first grade grammar. But these are are people who are foolish from the world's point of view because the way they live their lives, because of their priorities, because their desires, because their chief end is so foreign to everything that the world aspires to be and to do. And so they look at Christians and they say, you're foolish. What fools you all are, wasting a perfectly good Sunday evening to come to church? The world says that's foolish. And by calling the, those who the world finds foolish, God confounds the wise. 
all those who trust in their own intellect, in their own goodness, in any qualities within them, they will be confounded as God passes over them and calls the fool standing next to them. He's also chosen the things which are weak, the weak things of the world. These are just the opposite of the mighty. Now the mighty are popular and they are likable and they have means, but God chooses the weak. Right. The outcasts, the dejected ones, the poor and the feeble. Have you ever felt that way? Have, have you ever felt, because of maybe even because of your service to the Lord, that I just don't fit in with society. And you don't have to sound pious and say that you've never had those feelings. Because we all have that natural desire to want to fit in. Mm-hmm. And I want you to understand that that quality about you is something God chose. That's a good thing. It's a glorious thing. This choice of the weak confounds the mighty, as verse 27 says. The mighty think, look at my prestige. Look at my money. Look at my assets. Surely God would want someone as wealthy and resourceful as me. Those things are not enticing to the Lord. Why would the almighty God need the supposed might of any man? What do you have? that you could offer to God that He does not already own. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on, verse 28, and base things of the world and the things which are despised, those who are most detested by the world, those whom the world looks at and says, this one will never amount to anything. God looks at him and says, I'm going to make him a joint heir of all the heavenly riches in Christ Jesus. Amen. God puts down the pride of this world by choosing those whom the world despises to be exalted over them. And he then repeats this phrase again for special emphasis in verse 28. He says, hath God chosen. God is rebuking and reproving the self-righteousness of men. He's boasting in His sovereignty and He's taking the world by the back of the head and He's rubbing their nose in it. Hath God chosen, hath God chosen, hath God chosen. Things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. What's that mean? You you, you can't get any lower than this. Things that are not. These people that God is choosing to be His, they don't even exist in the eyes of the world. That's how low they are. They don't even exist. And God chooses them. And those who think they're something, hey, I'm somebody, God says, you're nobody. Mm-hmm. Nobody. This is incomprehensible to human wisdom. And God is putting them to an open shame. It's as if God is picking teams. You remember playing games like that? Where... All of your friends would be together. You're going to play a pickup basketball game. And so you, you pick two captains and they start picking teams. And one guy picks and then the next guy picks. And you're trying to pick all of the, the jocks, all of the athletes first, right? So you can stack your team. 
Well, that's what God is doing. But yet he's passing over the jocks. He's passing over the athletes. He's picking the nerds. He's picking the wimps. And he goes on and he wins the game and obliterates the competition. And all those people that thought they were really special in something are sitting on the sidelines confounded. That's what God is doing in the world. He's not chosen from among the most knowledgeable, powerful, successful, skillful, or resourceful. Rather, He has chosen those that He has purposed to choose. And His choice has confounded the world. Mm-hmm. It's a strange choice. But I want you to see the special reason. Look at verse 29, the special reason. Our God is a God of purpose. And He does the things that He does for a reason. And the reason for this strange choice Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in His presence. The reason why God has not chosen to call many people who are highly esteemed in the world and naturally perceived as great is so that no one can stand before God and attribute their salvation to anything they have done. It was Jonathan Edwards who said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And when you come to God, you must understand that you bring nothing to the table. Had God called the wise, they may have thought, well, God saved me because of my own intellect. Had God called the mighty, they might have assumed that God chose them because they added such value to His kingdom. But such things are never the case. Amen. God has so ordained the plan of redemption so that no one can glory in His presence. All the glory and all the honor and all the praise and all the adoration and all the thanksgiving of the salvation of every individual is to be laid at the feet of God alone. Amen. So far we've seen no one becomes a Christian, right? Because of any inherent goodness within them. And we've seen that this is the way that God has ordained it to be so that no one may boast in themselves. So the question arises, if men don't become Christians on their own, how do they become Christians? How how do they come to know the Lord? How do they come to receive Christ as their Savior? Well, the third thing I want you to see from this text is in verse 30, and it is the sovereign election. The sovereign election. Look at verse 30. It begins with this phrase. But of Him, but of Him are ye in Christ Jesus. Verse 30 emphatically declares the great difference maker in the spiritual condition of the human race. Why is it that some come to receive the gospel and some come to hear the gospel and some come to believe and others go on persisting in sin and unbelief? Is it because... Christians are just so much smarter than other people? Is it because they make such better decisions than other people? Well, he's already obliterated that in verses 27 through 28. The difference maker is not with you, but with God. Amen. Not with him that runneth, nor of him that willeth, but of God that showeth mercy. Amen. The reason you're a Christian is not of yourself. It's not because of your works. It's not because of your goodness, your wisdom, your might, or anything else of yours. God is the reason and the only reason that anyone is a Christian. This is the sovereign and unconditional election of God. 
This is God freely dispensing His grace. And this powerful truth, though so offensive to the flesh, is ordained of God because it strips us of the slightest possibility of taking any credit for our salvation. It's not God does 99% and man does the 1%. It's not God has made it possible and now you need to do your part. It's not God is in heaven having done all He could do and now the accomplishment of salvation rests on the abilities of men who the Bible says are dead in trespasses and sins. No, it's none of that. Salvation, as Jonah the prophet said, is of the Lord. Amen. And if you are in Christ, it is entirely God's doing. And you cannot boast in His presence because it is of Him that you are a Christian. Here we have before us one of the most robust exclamations of the sovereignty of God over the salvation of men. We couldn't give enough credit to God. We could never give Him the glory He is due. Every facet of our redemption is owed to God's choice, not ours. God's love, not ours. God's will, not ours. God's might, not ours. God's faithfulness, not ours. God's holiness, not ours. Amen. If you don't get anything else, get this from this text. That the reason you are saved is because God was pleased to have mercy on you and save you by His grace, period. And if you are not saved, if you are outside of Christ, the reason why you remain outside of Christ is because you keep trying to do some work within you, do enough good within you, strive enough within you, that maybe one day you might please God enough and He'll save you. Mm -hmm. You'll never do it. Amen. Quit your works, cast aside your sins, your righteousnesses, Isaiah 64, are as filthy rags unto a holy God. Lay them aside. Come to the cross naked and bare, with nothing in your hands, simply clinging to the perfect work of the Lord Jesus. Those are the type of people that God saves. I love expository preaching. No one can accuse me of harping on the same message over and over. I love the truth of God's election, but you can't say I preach it every week. But as it comes up in the text, we're going to preach it. Amen. And brothers and sisters, it's here in the text right before us. Amen. It was God who chose you before the foundation of the world. It was God who sent His Son to die for you on the cross. It was God who regenerated you and caused you to be converted unto Him. This is something God has done and not you. In theology, we say that salvation is monergistic. That that word comes from a Greek word for one and the Greek word for work. In other words, in salvation, there is only one entity at work, and it is God. Amen. You say, but I called upon the name of the Lord. Yes, you did, but He first called you. You say, but I chose to repent and believe. And yes, you did. You wouldn't be saved if you had not chosen to repent and believe. But you must understand that it was God who gave you the gifts of faith and repentance. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. What's the that? The faith is not of yourself, but it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. 
God has not given you anything whereby you may stake a claim into what He has done. God has already done the perfect work that secured the redemption of all those who would ever believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that Christ's work at Calvary was immaculate? It was perfect. It accomplished everything God intended it to do. And you offering up your good works is blasphemy when God has already performed a perfect work. Christ pleased the Father in His life, in His death, in His work on the cross, in His resurrection. As Christ came out of the tomb on that Sunday morning, it was as if God was in heaven stamping a divine seal of approval on everything Jesus had ever done. And God has said, this is my beloved Son. I am well pleased with Him. And if you want me to be pleased with you, you need to be in Him. Amen. You need to have your faith in Him. And if you're expecting me to be pleased with you on the basis of something you have done, it'll never happen. Mm. It'll never happen. Such a doctrine shatters human pride like broken glass into a million pieces. Amen. But this is the only view of salvation that even begins to give God the glory He deserves for what He has done. Our God has done it. Our God is powerful. Our God is sovereign. Our God is wonderful. Obligated to save no one. And yet He's saving a multitude from all the four corners of the earth. Obligated to dispense His grace upon no one. Yet it pleased Him. It pleased God. To be gracious to us. Let's finish chapter 1. I want you to see fourthly. The supply of grace. In verse 30. The supply of grace. At the end of verse 30. Of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who, Christ Jesus, of God, is made unto us. So God is making Christ something for us second person of the Trinity. Co-equal and co-eternal. Has been fashioned, has become, has been fitted to be a perfect Savior for us? Christ has become something for me? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued. What is He becoming for us? What, what is Christ being supplied to us for? Well, He's being made all the grace we'll ever need. Everything we could ever desire. Everything we could ever be required of to be made right with God. And this Again, is confounding the wisdom of the world. The world's wisdom would say, you need to become something so that God will accept you. But no, God has said, I'm going to give you myself so that I will accept you. Amen. Now we could, we could spend eternity considering all of the gracious gifts given to us through Christ. But this verse mentions four specifically. Look at them. And let me say that outside of Christ, there is no experience of any of these things. You must be a believer in Christ. You must be united to Christ through faith in order to experience this supply of grace in your life. 
quickly, these four things. Number one, wisdom. Verse 30, He has made unto us wisdom. Not the faulty wisdom of this world, but the true wisdom of God. This speaks of the enlightenment and illumination that Christ brings into our darkened hearts. Through Christ, we, have, we come to have a true saving knowledge of God. God reveals His glory through the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from this revelation, we are unaware of God's holiness, we are unaware of our sinful condition, and we are unaware of our great need for a Savior. So the very first thing Christ becomes for His people is the wisdom of God that makes them alive and opens their blinded eyes and gives them the ability to know God. Secondly, Christ becomes our righteousness. Man's great problem is that God demands a perfect holiness of all those who dwell with Him. God is holy and we are not. And we cannot go to Him on our own. But for those who are in Christ, Christ has satisfied the law on their behalf and He imputes unto them. That is, He gives to them. He accredits to them His perfect righteousness as a means for their justification. How can any man stand justified before God? Because of the perfection of Christ. Mm -hmm. Because when God looks at them who have believed on His Son, God no longer sees a sinner standing before Him, but God sees the perfect work of His Son. When we stand before God, we have Christ as our advocate. And when we sin, when we stumble... And God, in His holiness, moves about towards us with judgment. It is as if Christ, sitting at His right hand, says, Wait a minute. I've died for that person. You've punished me for that sin. Give them grace. Give them mercy. And apart from this righteousness, man has no hope of being accepted by God. The righteousness of Christ cannot be earned. It can only be received through faith becomes wisdom, righteousness. Thirdly, sanctification. Now, righteousness speaks to our legal standing before God, but sanctification is our practical walk with God. And a lot of Christians have this misconception. They, they understand, yes, I must be saved through faith, and I must be uh, saved through what Christ has done, but after I'm saved, in order to live the Christian life, it must be something I do and I come up with and I procure and that is the direct opposite of what Paul is telling Amen. us here in this text. How do you please God even as a believer? Mm-hmm. Through the work of the Holy Spirit moving in your heart, furnishing you to every good work, mending you, conforming you, changing you, making you Keep the law of God, not out of duty, but out of desire. What a radical change is wrought within the life of a believer by the sanctifying grace of God. Those of you who are converted, you you now love the things you once hated. You now hate the things you once loved. God is so good to us that He will not allow us to remain in sin. He will not allow us to keep wallowing around in the filth that He saved us from. And if you can be at peace with yourself and pleased with yourself, 
living in the same sins that Jesus died to save you from, you, you need to search your heart. You need to question yourself. Am I really in Christ? Because Christ will not leave me in this sin. Yes, there'll be times of wandering. Yes, there'll be times of backsliding. Yes, there'll be times of, of hardship and struggle. But, but friend, you will not be able to persist enjoyably and comfortably in the sins that God died to save you from. Amen. Because Christ is our sanctification. And the grace of sanctification is inseparable from the grace of righteousness. All those whom God justifies, He sanctifies. Amen. He loses not a one. Amen. Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for her and now He's cleansing her and He's sanctifying her that He could present her unto God as a beautiful and spotless garment without any blemish or any spot. The last thing Christ is for us is the grace of of redemption. Look at it in verse 30. And redemption. Now there's a debate over the particular usage of this term. Obviously redemption does refer to our salvation, but we take note of here that the the fact that it is separated from the words righteousness and sanctification. So I believe that it's fitting to understand this as a reference to the day of redemption, the glorious day of the Lord in which Christ shall return and Christ shall call us and we shall be glorified. Christ is our redemption in the sense that He is our eternal deliverance from sin. He is our forever casting away of all besetting sins. He is the conqueror of all things that limit us from fully serving God and all things that hinder us in the worship of God. And Christ will come and He will redeem us in body as He already has in soul. And we shall be with Him forever. The finished work of Christ shall be consummated and all that He purchased on the cross shall be fully delivered unto Him. And we shall be eternally united with Him in body and in spirit. And we shall dwell with Him throughout the ceaseless ages. That is what Paul is telling the Corinthians. And he's saying this work that God has done with you, and He's done it with the most unlikely people to do it with. It's confounded the wise. Mm -hmm. It's confounded the wise. These are the graces that Christ is for His people. And participation in these graces hinges upon your faith. In him. And then lastly, the supreme objective, verse 31. The wisdom of God in calling the worthless and making them worthy, in calling the poor and making them rich, in calling the sinners and making them saints. Verse 31, we see as Paul closes this chapter and this section on the wisdom of God as seen in the choice of men and women, that according as it is written, he that glorieth. Let him glory in the world and in the, in the Lord. Why has God chosen the foolish things? Why has God not allowed his people any reason to glory in themselves? Why has God not chosen the mighty? Why has God ordained Christ to be the exclusive supply of grace? It is so that he that glorieth will glory in the Lord. Amen. God has done it this way that we might come to perceive something of how awesome and wondrous and magnificent our God is. He has designed the economy of His grace so that He is the one who receives all the glory and all the praise. 
For taking the feeblest of this world and making them His trophies. And we as the Lord's people ought to be gloriers. We ought to be boasters. Not in ourselves, but in the God who has redeemed us. We ought to brag about the goodness of God in our lives. In fact, God has designed His eternal plan so that we would do just that. Who does God call? He calls the feeble. And why does He do it? So that He receives the honor and the glory. And as we close, I want to ask you a question as it pertains to the grace that Christ becomes for His people. I want you to all ask yourself this question. Look at these things that Christ becomes for His people. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Has Jesus Christ become these things for you? Has He opened your eyes to your standing before Him? Has He become your wisdom? Have you seen yourself unholy, law-breaking, a sinner in desperate need of salvation? Is, Is Christ your wisdom? Has Christ become your righteousness? Can you pillow your head and point your toes to heaven and know that you have peace with God? Not on the basis of anything you have done, but solely on what He has done. Has Christ become your sanctification? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? Are you winning the victory over sin in your own life? Are you ever dependent upon the Holy Spirit to enable you to live the Christian life? Has Christ become your redemption? Do you have the certain hope that there is coming a day when Christ shall return and receive you to Himself and you shall dwell with Him forever? Do you have these graces in your life from Jesus? Ask yourself this question. If Christ is not these things to you, then you have no standing before God. Mm. You are lost. Amen. You are in your sins. And the wrath of God shall come upon you and it shall damn you if you have not the Lord Jesus Christ. But even now, Christ is offering Himself to all those who come unto Him by faith. And Christ is promising to you right now that if you would repent of your sin and believe in Him, everything you could ever need to be approved, accepted, and beloved of God, He'll freely supply you. Yeah. He won't require any works on your part. He won't require any payment on your part. He won't require any church membership on your part. No, those are all things that happen long after He's already done work within your heart. He'll become these things unto you and to so much more. You must come to Christ. You must not wait. Your eternity depends upon your relationship to Jesus Christ. Amen. And friend, God is in the business of saving sinners just like you. I know because... I'm just like you. And I've received this grace. And I've seen others receive this grace. And the Bible promises that all who come unto Him in faith receive this grace. If Christ is not your wisdom, you have no wisdom. If Christ is not your righteousness, you have no righteousness. If Christ is not your sanctification, you have no sanctification. And if Christ is not your redemption, you have no redemption. But if you place your faith in Christ, then you will have Him. You will have Christ. You will have all of these graces and He alone will be your all in all. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name.
for the privilege yet again to stand with the Word of God open before us, to declare Your mercies and Your grace and Your holiness and Your character and Your Word. Oh, Father, feed us. Feed us from the Word of God. Add a blessing to the preaching of Your Word. Sanctify the saint and save the sinner. Oh, God, we love You. And we worship You. We hallow Your name. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.